Well, welcome to uh, an important time in our worship service. All of it's important, and I often think, you know, what's the most important, and, and it depends on the person. It may be a personal prayer that you have. It may be a song that touches your heart. It, it may be something that, that uh, God causes you to think about when you just slow down for a moment and spend an hour with Him in His house. Uh, I don't pretend it's always this moment, but uh, this is an important moment when we open God's Word and read it and spend some time with it. Today we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 22. So if you can open your Bible to the middle, you'll find the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs comes right after that. Proverbs chapter 22. Let's begin with a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts prove acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, today I'm going to be talking about just one verse, but I want to read the context as well. I think the context is important. But uh, actually, preaching on half of one verse, uh, which uh, bodes well for you in terms of time, uh, Proverbs 22, and I want to look at verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. We especially want to look at that last part. You know, to borrow is to enter into slavery uh, in a form. And those are God's words, not mine. Uh, I pray that um, that stark truth helps us understand just how dangerous and how freedom-restricting, you know, indebtedness can be. But this is a text that is part of a greater whole so I want to read the first nine verses right now, and I want to talk about the context of this, because uh, we are in danger, I think, of majoring in minors. And this is not the gospel. This is uh, a reflection of the gospel attitude that you have in your heart. Remember, we talked about the principles of God regarding um, handling money, handling resources, handling material possessions. You know, we talked about appetites. We talked about his values. We talked about his inverted economy. And, and so it's important that we bring that context forward. Uh, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. That's the most important thing, that you be right with God. This is why Jesus came. This was the main purpose for which he came. But it's not to say that he doesn't have practical advice for us. This won't lead you to the cross but it can keep you from experiencing the blessings of the cross. Therefore, we should teach it. You know, it's taught in the Bible. We should teach all of God's counsel. Uh, so um, I, I think it's important we spend time with it. After all, God spent time with it in his word. Let's look at Proverbs 22. I want to read through verses 1 to 9. A good name is more desired than great riches. There you have it. You know, who you are is more important than what you possess. Don't ever forget that. Because in this day and age, especially in West County, in America, you know, what you possess even becomes kind of a, a moniker of, of who you are. You know, we are all about labels. We drive certain labels. We live at certain addresses. We wear certain clothes. You know, and, and that's important in West County. Uh, uh, we have to fight against that. You know, we have TVs that constantly promote uh, things. Don't forget who you are is more important than what you possess. Uh, I'm going to quote it later, but I, it comes to mind now. Um, ben Franklin said, 
You know, there is no shame in being poor. There is just shame in being ashamed that you're poor. You know, to be able to accept who you are is more important than what you possess. You know, I, I, and I, I don't think someone's totally recovered from something unless they can talk freely about it. You know, it, it, there's no shame in saying you came up from nothing. You know, I can honestly say uh, we lived on the wrong side of the tracks and had a bad address. You know, growing up, that's just the way it was. My dad was never a wealthy man, uh, but he taught us values and they have served us well. So he was rich in many ways, just not in material possessions. A good name is more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. You know, to be highly honored by people is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of both of them. And uh, if, you, if you're making notes, and I always encourage you at least write some passages down and maybe read them later, but Ephesians 6 would be a good chapter to read. And Paul makes this same point when he gets to Ephesians 6. He says, whether you're an employer or whether you're an employee, actually he calls it a master or a slave, you know, using his economy. But uh, we think about that as an employer or an employee. Don't forget you have this in common. You know, you are all children of God. And so if you rule over others as an employer, don't forget you have one who rules over you. And would you like to be treated the way that you treat others? You know, because God is able to do that. And he says if you work for somebody else, you should work for them as though you are working for God. You know, not just doing eye service, not just working hard when they're watching you, but uh, being dedicated as though the Lord himself was was your employer. So um, the Lord is the maker of us all. The prudent sees evil and he, uh, and he runs from it or he hides himself from it. Uh, but the naive, they go right on and they incur judgment for it. The reward of humility and the fear, and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. You know, here's the key. The reward of humility and fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will always stay far away from them. And then this passage is also quoted in that section where I talked about employees, employers in Ephesians 6. This passage is also quoted there. It's interesting that they are also linked here. Train up a child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he should not depart from it. He will not depart from it. You know, there's some comfort uh, but there's also some responsibility on training our children to know these things, especially when we get to this verse about, you know, uh, indebtedness. You cannot train kids too soon how to handle material possessions. It, it really influences their whole life. It's basic to life. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, spent uh, verses, an entire chapter, chapter 6 of Matthew, uh, discussing this issue. You know, uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth can uh, eat and where rust can corrode and where thief can steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You know, your eye, if it's clear on this matter, uh, your whole world will be light. But if your eye is dark on this matter, your whole world will be dark. You know, it's just critical to your attitude about life. And we're all old enough in here, I think, to know that attitude determines quality of life. It's, all, it's really more important than your circumstance. You know, your attitude about things. And that's what he's talking about. He goes on to talk about the lilies of the field and they don't sow, they don't work. And yet not even Solomon was dressed like them. You know, don't you think the Lord knows that you have need of physical things? So get it right 
and get it straight, you know, honor him and live his values and, and he will provide. And that's what he's saying here. And train kids to know this. Train them early on to know this. Because if they don't get this, uh, their life is going to be um, out of sorts, out of priority, and a constant struggle. You know, it's, it's so easy to spoil kids when they are little. And uh, we can wreck them for life if we, if we do. You, you, have to, you have to control yourselves as you train children what to eat and also what to possess and how to take care of it. It's just so essential. And then he goes on. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Whoever sows iniquity will reap vanity and yet the rod of his fury will perish. You know, uh, all of his anger will eventually be gone and, and he won't really matter. There's nothing lasting to such a person. But the one who is generous will be blessed. For the one, uh, for he also gives food to the poor. So that's the context. Um, the context is greater than just this passage about fear indebtedness. You know, it's all about wisdom. It's all about priorities. And uh, I need to say that, almost oversay that, just so that we understand uh, God cares about this issue. But this issue is a reflection of greater value. In fact, this is true even in Solomon's life, isn't it? Remember, uh, when David died, Solomon was the one that God chose to be on the throne after David. And uh, in fact, I'm going to be preaching at a, a memorial tomorrow for one of our older members, 93 years old. And I met with the family um, uh, to plan for that service. And uh, I'm going to be preaching on 1 Kings chapter 2, David's last words, because this lady was smart. You know, I, I love this. Uh, uh, she wrote some things to her kids in advance of her death. She even wrote a blessing for them. Can you imagine how powerful that will be for her kids, her grandkids, her great-grandkids to have those words, you know, uh, ring down through the ages, you know, from their grandma, their great-grandma, you know, and, and my message is called Famous Last Words because it's based on these famous last words of David to Solomon. They're the same words that are reflected in God's advice to Joshua as he begins his um, leadership of the children of Israel. He said, Take courage, you know, be strong and courageous. Do not turn from the right or the left of all that God has commanded, and you will have success as you go. So be courageous and be faithful. It's the key to success in life. When, when David died, Solomon felt small. Have you ever felt small in your life? Was there a time when you felt small? You know, maybe it was when you got a job that you knew you weren't qualified to take. You know, maybe it was when you held your first baby in your hands. I remember that. I thought, what have I done here? You know, uh, I am still a child. There's so much I don't know, and now I've assumed responsibility for somebody else. You know, wow, did I feel small. And uh, there are times when we should appropriately feel small. That's how Solomon felt when he had this responsibility to be the king of Israel. And so he went to Gilgal, and he made huge offerings there uh, to God because he was just like, man, God, if, if you don't go, this is going to be ugly. If you don't help, this is going to be bad. And, and so he prayed and he made offerings to God. And God came to him in a dream, remember? And he said, uh, that's in First Kings chapter 3. He said, Solomon, ask whatever you want. And uh, Solomon prayed. And what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom, discernment. He said, I am uh, not capable of managing this and I will make a mess of things. Grant me wisdom. And God said... And in his answer, there's some indication of the, intendance, uh, the tendency of man. He said, because you did not ask for long life, 
That might be what most people would ask. Because you did not ask for riches, which might be what most people would ask for if you could have any one thing. Because you did not ask for power over your enemies, I will give you these things because wisdom is the key to everything else. It's interesting that Solomon often repeated a phrase that is attributed to him, but is actually found first in the mouth of his daddy. David said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a good understanding have all those who keep his commandments. Psalm 111. It's found throughout the proverb. It's found throughout Ecclesiastes. And so most people say those are the words of Solomon. They are the words of Solomon, but he, was, he heard that from his daddy a lot. And so he repeated it later. And so Solomon asked for wisdom, and with wisdom he had also these other things. And so the context, again, if you want to manage money well, you know, have a right relationship with God. You know, be a spiritual person. And wisdom comes from that relationship and that understanding. In fact, Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He knows you need these other things. He will provide them for you. So getting back to our verse, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor. God has much to say to the rich. He has much to say to you and to me. Remember the exercise I went over about a year ago when I said, how many of you are rich and no one would raise their hand? And I said, okay, how many of you had clean drinking water? You know, how many of you had a car? How many, you remember when I did that? And then I said, how many of you are rich? And you know, so you raised your hand about like this then. You know, okay, in, in realms of the world, we are the rich people. You know, so he says, the rich rule over the poor. God has a lot to say to us who are rich, and I would put myself in that category. I'd put you all in that category, no matter how much you have. Uh, he says, be careful not to abuse those you work for. In fact, if you want to bump down to 22 and 23, those who work for you. Do not rob the poor just because you can. You know, because you're smarter in a position of power. Don't afflict uh, them at the gate. Don't crush them. Don't take advantage of them. For the Lord pleads their case, and he can take the life of those who rob them. You know, so it's a powerful lesson. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he also says this to husbands. He says, be careful, you know, about your wife. She is the more vulnerable partner. And I, and I think that's just gender stuff. By the way, we're going to preach a, uh, a message uh, next year. Uh, we've done some of our planning for next year. And we're going to preach a, a, a section on gender. Uh, you know, there is a difference between the men and women. And, and women are, the old King James used to say weaker vessel, but I don't think that's the best translation, more vulnerable. The, emotionally, they are more vulnerable. And I think physically, certainly, uh, typically more vulnerable. And so he says uh, also to husbands, be careful that you don't abuse your power because God defends your wife. And so he says this also about those of us who are in positions of authority. Uh, don't abuse your authority because God defends those who work for you. God defends the poor. So that's all I'm going to say. We need to keep moving because we want to get to the second half of the verse. Um, don't forget, if you borrow money, you enter into a form of slavery. Now, our nation fought a war over slavery. Now, don't write me an email. I know it was mostly over state rights, but it was states' rights based on the issue of slavery. In fact, the whole nation was being carved up on how many slave states there were and how many free states there were. And, you know, Lincoln said those famous last words from, from uh, quoting Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
you know, that finally we're going to have to deal with this issue. We're going to have to be united on this issue. And, and a great war was fought and, and so many people suffered and died uh, over the issue of slavery. Would you voluntarily enter into slavery? It's really what he's saying. You know, when you borrow, that's what you've done. You've put yourself under somebody else's authority. Someone else has power over you. Now, I would just want to make some points about borrowing. God is not opposed to all forms of borrowing. You know, there are times in life when, um, you know, uh, things need to be borrowed. Uh, in fact, he, he says just be careful about it. In, in fact, people could even uh, take a form of indentured servanthood, even in the Old Testament. You know, if they incurred hard times, if they had bad crops, or if they uh, suffered a huge setback, they could hire themselves out, they could hire their children out, and they did. But God also put limits on that. But he was not against all form of borrowing. He says he was against abuse of those who had to borrow. You know, even if you took somebody's coat as surety for a, for a gift, you always had to make sure they had it so they could cover themselves at night and keep warm. You know, so he wasn't against all forms of borrowing. In fact, he said the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the, the righteous are generous. You know, they always repay. They can always be trusted. So it isn't that he was against borrowing per se. It's interesting, though, that in the Jewish culture, a Jewish person could not lend money to another Jewish person and charge interest. It was called usury. It was called abusive uh, gain. In, in fact, if you were found doing this, you could even be put to death. That's how serious God was, you know, about not performing Christian charity. You know, being careful to make loans, being careful to need loans. And how many families have been ruined by lending money to family members? You know, uh, I always consider uh, when my kids needed some help, and whose kids don't need help? And uh, in fact, I've been willing to help them more than they've been willing to receive it sometimes, which is, you know, always makes me feel good. Uh, but I always consider it a gift. You know, when I, when I had to help them with money, I said, it's, it's a gift. Uh, and they said, well, we'll repay you. I said, that's up to you. You know, it, it's up to you. I'm, I'm not going to be your master. I'm not going to be your slave owner. You know, and uh, so it's entirely up to them. And, and uh, they understood that. And I think that's the way to deal with it. You could, you could lend money. In fact, you were encouraged to lend money to another Jew. But you couldn't charge them interest. However, you could charge interest to a foreigner. <laughs> Deuteronomy 23. You shall not charge interest to your brother... Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. But to a foreigner, you may charge interest. Uh, but to your brother, you should not charge interest. A and later, it became a problem because they were only lending money to foreigners and they wouldn't help each other out. And the prophet said, this is not what God said. He didn't say you shouldn't help each other. He just said you shouldn't make money off of helping each other. So, you know, it's amazing how we can take something that God has established for good and make it evil. Uh, point two. God was opposed to a lifestyle of debt. Leviticus 25 is a, you know, nobody reads through Leviticus. You, you get into it and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read all these ceremonial laws. And then you get bogged down in the weeds and you just, you quit. Uh, but Leviticus 25 has an interesting principle. Uh, you know that God has established uh, seven days. And on the seventh day, God rested. And not because he was tired. You know, God doesn't get tired, but he wanted to establish a model for us. You know, we should have a respite. We talked about this recently, you know, that there should be a, a respite in our life. We should rest every seven days. In fact, 
our cattle should rest, our slaves should rest. And God just declared a day of rest, and we should honor that in our lives. It's still a principle that applies to us today. On the seventh year, God required that fields would be given rest. They would lie fallow. You know, there was a farmer when I was at seminary back in Springfield back in the day when seminary was still up there. Uh, I, uh, I, I grew up farming with my grandparents. My folks didn't farm, but my grandparents did, so I helped them on the farm. And it was kind of fun to, to be in a farming community again and help some of these guys. And there was an old guy up there who followed biblical practices of farming, and he still allowed his crop to life fallow, you know, just to not always work. He always had a field that was sitting out. And it was kind of interesting. Even when, even when he'd grow wheat, uh, he would uh, usually plant clover first and then plant the wheat. He'd harvest the wheat, and then the clover was growing under it, and he would just plow it under. Instead of using chemicals, he would use natural ways to refurbish the soil. This was God's way. And, and so God said, this is a lesson for you as well. During that year, you should have a rest. You can eat off of what grows naturally in your fields because it will still grow, but you should not work the fields. You can eat from your vines, but you shouldn't trim your vines. And then every seven times seven years, on the 50th year, there was a national jubilee. Guess what? All debts had to be forgiven. Every 50 years, every debt had to be forgiven. So this was an interesting culture. Can you imagine? You know, if you were in the 35th year and you had only 15 years left, would you loan a lot of money to somebody? No, you would not, because you know they had only 15 years to, to uh, return that, or it was all going to be wiped out. What he's basically saying is that sometime in everybody's life, you should balance the books, right? Sometime in everybody's life, you should be debt-free. And, and if you can't do that yourself, I'm going to make a law, and I'm going to require it. And so every 50 years, all debts were forgiven, all land was returned, you know, all... Uh, all loans were, uh, were made null and void. That was a principle of God for his people. And it kept them, you know, kind of evenly balanced in life. Now, we're not, you know, President Obama hasn't instituted that for us yet. You know, Congress hasn't voted on that yet. So don't count on that. It's not happening for us. But there's a principle that applies to us and we ought to honor that. Sometime in our life, we should have a plan when we will all be debt free. Uh, Point number three, struggle is not considered a bad thing in God's eyes. You know, why do, uh, the things that people borrow money for, they borrow money to buy mattresses. You know, people borrow money to buy cars. Um, you know, Dave Ramsey, I'm going to refer to him in a minute. He, he said, you know, buy what you can afford. Save up and pay cash for it. You have to get there in, in your place. Why is it that we think that we need uh, to not struggle. There are lessons to be learned in struggle, but debt allows us not to struggle. We can have it now. We don't have to wait. You can buy furniture and not make a payment for two years. Uh, how tempting is that? You know, but you better be putting that money away because if you miss one payment, it's all retroactive and it's all due now. And you will pay through the nose at a high rate. People just don't get this. You know, struggle is not a bad thing. Our kids should be taught to live within their means. You know, live in an apartment. Live in a small house. You don't have to have the big house right away. You don't have to have the new car right away. You know, you should be able to pay for what it is that you need as you grow into your income, as you grow into your life. In fact, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14 says, When times are good, be happy, rejoice. When times are bad, consider 
God has made the one as well as the other. He has made times for struggle. There are lessons that we only learn in struggle. Amen? Some of your most important lessons are learned that way. If you take the struggle out of life for your kids, or by borrowing you, take, you think the struggle out of your life, you're avoiding some important lessons that you need to learn. God is not against struggle. In fact, uh, it's interesting that Solomon, who had all things, prayed in Proverbs 30. This is his prayer, good prayer for us. Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest I be in need and curse you, or lest I have more than I need and think I don't need you. Give me the food that is my portion. You know, just give me enough. That's all I should want is just enough. Uh, Paul told Timothy, with food and clothing, with these be content. Well, let me just give you some practical biblical advice, just uh, four quick points uh, that might help, maybe not help, but maybe one of them will help you uh, from the Scripture. First of all, knowledge is power. We've been giving you different uh, challenges each week in this series as we move into the practical matter. Uh, Today the challenge is this. Discover your true net worth. What do you owe and what do you possess and what is the balance? You know, it's... You can't deal with the issue of debt if you don't know to what degree you're in debt. You know, so discover your true net worth. Here's Ecclesiastes 7 verse 12 says, Wisdom is a shelter like money is a shelter. You know, get wise. It's a shelter for you. The advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. You know, so, so be wise in this matter. It's more important than money. I think it's the only advantage to filing taxes in America is that you have to deal with the reality of your financial situation. What is your situation? Uh, You can't correct it if you don't know what it is. So first of all, knowledge is power. Secondly, don't get lost in the weeds. You've heard of the KISS principle? Keep it simple. Sinner. (laughs) Or stupid. I think most of us learn keep it simple, stupid. You know, Ecclesiastes 6 verse 9 says... What the eye see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after the wind. You know, when I was uh, uh, first married, I got to admit, I don't know a great deal about finances. In in fact, uh, John Lindblom, Tom Brickler, there are some other people who do some uh, tax uh, work for staff people. And and, uh, I I would file my own taxes because I'm kind of, I'm proud. You know, pride gets in the way of people. And, and so I'd file my own taxes, and i get this letter saying, you filed your taxes wrong, you owe 20000 more than you think. You know, exaggeration, but always three or 4000 more. And I would, or you should explain it to us. So I'd explain it to them, I owe three or 4000 more. I'd explain it to them, they'd say, thank you for your explanation, you actually owe $8,000, you know, so it would just like go bad. It would go bad. And so I'd say, John, John's a CPA, he's a really, he's got a, he's got a, He's with a big uh, uh, company down. He's a partner at a company in Clayton. You know, he, he travels the country and deals with people who have estates. You know, so I would say, John, you got to help me out. And he would just scratch his head and he'd go, just let me take care of it. And he'd take care of it. And they'd say, okay, it's all been solved. And, and I did that to him like two or three times. He said, would you just stop filing? You know, because you don't know what you're doing. And, uh, and, and let me, I will save myself a lot of grief if you'd let me help you with that to begin with. And so now that's what happens. When, when, I, when I first got married, we didn't have any money. Uh, we uh, made $6,800. That was my first salary. 6800 I did get a parsonage, but I noticed they kept it when I left there. They didn't give that to me. 
I don't know what was wrong with those people. But uh, Carol actually was making $7,200. So after four years of college and four years of seminary, I went to a job that paid less than what my wife was making. What does that tell you? You know, it's just not, not a bright guy. And, and so I didn't have any choice. I was assigned back in the day. You just got assigned. And, and so I went there. Uh, but this I did. This is one thing I did right. Because I'm so simple, I just made that point. I don't know about finances. I said, what are the things they are going to take away from me if I don't make payments? Things that I have to pay. Now, for me, that was a tithe. I learned that from Carol's dad. Tithe was important. So what is my tithe on that about of money? The thing is, when you don't make much money, you don't have a big tithe. And, and so what was 10% of that? Uh, also, we had life insurance. I had to make those payments. I felt so obligated to provide for my kids if something happened to me. You know, we had a child by then. Uh, uh, you know, what are some other things? Retirement, I wanted to set some money aside for retirement. Had to do that. You know, I didn't have many things. We had paid cash for my car, but say it would be a car, say it would be your mortgage. And, and so I actually did this. This is how simple it had to be for me. I, I knew what that was. I divided by 24 because you get two checks in a month. And I actually took that amount of money and I deposited it in a separate check account. And then the other money was like my allowance. You know, whatever was left was my allowance. Food was not mandatory because you don't have to eat, all right? Vacation was not mandatory because you don't have to go on vacation. Entertainment was not mandatory because you don't have to go to movies. And, and so I had to just live on what was left, and so I felt like that was mad money, you know? And, and so we could eat really well and never go out, or we could eat really badly and go out, you know? So, but what was kind of fun about that was when those mandatory things came, I went to this checkbook, the money was always there. It was never hard for me to write my tithe. It was never hard for me to write my insurance payment. It was never hard to, for me to write my, my quarterly uh, uh, self-employment tax uh, payment because the money was set aside. So I, I think there's value in that counsel of God to keep it simple. Secondly, uh, set SMART goals. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but this is a helpful tool. SMART goals. Specific, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Make sure your SMART goal is measurable. You will know if you've achieved it or not because it's, it's specific, but it's also able to be measured. Uh, it's attainable. You know, don't say if you still owe $75,000 in your house, uh, you're going to pay $50,000 on your house this year and you're only making sixty. Probably not going to happen. That's not attainable. It's specific. It's measurable. It's attainable. It's able to be reviewed. If it's not working for you, you can say, hey, this isn't working. Let's go look at this again. Let's get some counsel. Let's adjust. You know, it has an ability to be reset or reviewed. And it's done within a certain time frame. This, goal, this idea of setting goals, smart goals, works if you're on a diet. It works on, if you're on an exercise program. It works uh, if you have a project that you need to complete. Uh, set a smart goal to accomplish it. It also works when it comes to finances. Here's what the Lord says. Ecclesiastes 11, 4 to 6. The one who watches the wind will not sow. The one who looks at the clouds will never harvest. He's saying if you're always waiting for the right time, it will never come. you got to pull the trigger. you got to get engaged. You know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. You know, so you got to pull the trigger on things. If, if the farmer's always waiting, oh, it's not right, it's not right to plant, not right. The almanac says it's not right, not right. Or if I cut, if I cut the hay, it's going to rain on it, and, you know, it's going to rot in the fields. You know, it's not right, it's not right. You know, so he says, you finally got to trust God. He says, uh, just as you do not know the path of the wind, how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you don't know the activity of God who makes all things. 
Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. You don't know which is going to succeed, either this or that or both of them equally. In other words, you know, don't put all your chickens into one basket. You know, get engaged, do a number of things. And, and this is kind of a principle we live by here too. Don't just ask God to bless what you are doing stubbornly. Do what God is blessing. You know, so engage in some things and then follow the path where God is blessing. So set smart goals. I, I want to do this last thing. I'm going to do it quickly. Uh, but we, we highly recommend Ramsey's stuff. He's even gotten more Christian in his rewrite of FPU, uh, Financial Peace University. We're offering a new session this Wednesday. I have gone through it. You know, I, my finances are in pretty good order. Uh, but I still learned so much from that. And this book here, Total Money Makeover, it's available down in the bookstore. This makes it, I, I think there are two books besides the Bible that every newly wed couple should get. Uh, you should, they should have the Bible. Hopefully they have the Bible already. Then they should get Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus because men don't understand women and women don't understand men. That book, I wish I'd have read that uh, years ago. I read it way too late. Uh, and then this book, you know, uh, Total Money Makeover because he talks about God's principles for handling finances and it is what kills many families. It's what causes undue stress. And uh, uh, if, if you really love them, you should enroll them in Financial Peace University, too. And he suggests that not because he makes any money, but just because it's a wise thing to do. It helps people. He, I'm going to give you five of his seven principles. He even gives you more sub-principles. But let me just bust through them. He says, create an emergency fund. $1,000. He says, because you have to live on a budget. You have to say, I'm going to quit borrowing. In fact, you may have to sell some things. You know, if, if you have a car payment of $500 a month, that's just silly. That's $500 a month you could be putting in your pocket. You know, buy a responsible vehicle you don't have to do that with and, and then save that money. So dig out from under. You know, if you're in a hole, stop digging. You know, it's a basic principle of life. And then have an emergency fund because he says as soon as you establish a budget and you decide you're going to tell the money where to go rather than your money tell you what to do, uh, he says you're going to have a test. The devil just does that. He'll throw something at you. Your refrigerator is going to go bad. You're going to have flat tires. You know, whatever it is. And if you don't have an emergency fund, you're not going to be able to handle that and you're going to go back and borrow again. So he said the first thing you should do is establish $1,000 uh, as, as an emergency fund. One lady took... 10 $100 bills, put them in a picture frame between two pieces of glass and said, break in the case of an emergency. And then she hung it in the closet behind her clothes, you know. And uh, he said, you got to put it out of reach because the pizza guy showing up at the door is not an emergency. You know, just, just saying. So he says, create an emergency fund, get the snowball rolling. Okay, we all have debt. Figure out how to attack the debt, begin to attack the debt. Uh, most people would say attack the highest interest loan that you have. He says, actually attack the smallest debt that you have because you'll have success. You'll beat that one, then you'll beat the next one, you beat the next one. It's a pretty good theory and it works. He says, create a safety net. You know, it's important that after you have begun to do these things, then gradually build up a savings so that you can last three to six months because um, the worst time to borrow is when times are bad. You should be able to stand losing a job or losing major income or having a setback for three to six months. And then establish and maintain a retirement fund. I was just talking to Pastor Sprick um, uh, about this. You know, I, I fear for this generation that doesn't have companies providing retirement for them. Because they have encouragement to, to self-save. And, and I guarantee you they're not doing it. And I just wonder what's going to become of us as a nation. 
you know, some companies match, you know, your church does match a small percentage to encourage uh, your staff to save uh, for retirement. And uh, he says 10 to 15 percent. There's a Craig Ford is a Christian counselor. He's on the internet. He's got a a good percentage budget that I would recommend to you. He tries to save as much as 19%. Ramsey says 15% for future retirement. You know, if you get yourself organized, that may seem a lot now, but you can do that. And pay off the mortgage. Uh, You know, make a plan to pay off the mortgage. A lot of us just have to finally say, okay, uh, I bought this house as as a pride issue. I bought this house as an esteem matter. I don't need this much house. You know, it used to be a good investment to buy houses because they always appreciated 10% every year. Not so lately, right? And, uh, and so that was my principle too. I bought rehabbed houses, made more money. And uh, eventually maybe you just have to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to readjust my life. I'm going to move down. There's no shame in, in being poor. There's only shame in being ashamed of being poor. And I'm not going to worry about what my friends think. I'm not going to worry about what my parents think or what my kids think. I'm going to live within my means. And we have a number of staff people who are doing this. I have one staff person uh, uh, who serves as, as one of our leaders. Uh, she and her husband sold their house. They bought a foreclosure had mold in it, had all kinds of problems. Nobody would touch it. And they just said, we're going to rip out the drywall. And they did. And they ripped out the kitchen. And they just gradually rebuilt. And they got an awesome house now because they were willing to do the work. I admire people who step down, no shame, live within their means. So uh, uh, Ramsey says, the new, uh, the used car and the paid off mortgage is the new chic. You know, it's not the McMansion that you drive up to. and It's not the car you pick up your kids in. That's enough. I'm sure I'm way over time. I got to get out of here. Life is meant to be enjoyed, not endured. God wants you to have freedom. You know, not slavery, not stress, not pressure. It can happen for you. Find a means. It may not be the means that I shared, but find a means and embrace it and find the joy of it. Last passage, but you should write this one down for sure. You should probably knit it and hang it above the couch. I don't, you don't knit, you crochet, I think, but whatever, cross-stitch, maybe that's the word, I don't know. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.4, if you are still alive, there is hope. If you are still alive, there is hope. And then it follows up, the second part of that verse says, remember, a living dog is better than a dead lion. I like that. A living dog is better than a dead lion. If you are alive, there is still hope. I don't care where you are, it can get better. God wants it to be better. He wants you to have life and have it to the full. This is why Jesus came, why you have been redeemed. Amen.